Hey everyone, welcome back to Instrumental after a bit of a hiatus since I'm on break from teaching right now and I finally have time to put some more episodes together. My name is Bria Murakami and I'm your host and I'm very excited to share episode 5 of our second season which is an interview with my best friend Daniel Goldschmidt who I think I've mentioned anonymously in a few previous episodes Daniel is a music therapist like me, who's also a music science nerd. He's also a great speaker and consultant on all things music therapy, and this episode is pretty much a conversation we had last week when he was in town for a visit. We were also lucky enough to record at Sake One, which is a sake distillery in Forest Grove, Oregon, so at some point in the episode, you'll get some bonus ASMR um, when we're trying one of Sake One's delicious sake, so if you're ever in Forest Grove, definitely go check them out. Also, since Daniel and I did record a day after New Year's, our conversation is kind of forward-looking specifically about how we'd like music therapy and music cognition to come together, to come closer together in the next year, decade, or even further in the future. I know you're going to love his perspective, and if you'd like to keep up with what he's doing, um, go ahead and follow him on Twitter at at Daniel NNZ, as in Daniel, Nancy, Nancy, Zachary, or if I'm being fancy, I'd say November, November, Zulu for all you NATO phonetic alphabet people out there, um, which is a goal of mine to memorize that alphabet code. But anyways, I'll say it does feel really good to be back behind the microphone, and I wanted to update you guys. We recently hit a really cool milestone of 10,000 downloads around the world. So listeners, thank you so much for your support. It really means a lot, and it's really motivating to me, so I gotta keep putting out new episodes, I know that. Um, Yeah, so to get the latest updates, again, follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at InstrumentalPod. And without further ado, here's my interview with Daniel Goldschmidt. Daniel Goldschmidt, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. Um, so I'm a music therapist. Um, I, Bree and I met over our shared love of music cognition and how it relates to music therapy. And um, I've continued to learn about that stuff and present on that stuff in regional and national conferences. Um, I've also more recently in the last uh, year or two gotten into feminist methodology and race um, critical race theory. So um, I just presented at the Music Therapy National Conference on whiteness in music therapy. I have a dog named Steinway, <laughs> um, and uh, and yeah, that's kind. Of, I, I did a TED talk on music cognition back in 2014, uh, TEDx um, in Virginia, and um, I'm kind of doing this out of order. And then I had a music therapy private practice for a few years in Virginia um, that I sold a year and a half ago or so. Yeah, so we met on Twitter because of our shared love of music cognition, and we were both music therapists. Um, gosh, I think, because I retweeted something about a grad school program that was half music therapy and half music cognition or something. I actually don't remember. That'd be crazy I just to know. go back and like find the tweet. And we messaged. Did I message you or did you message me? No, you retweeted my thing, and I think I sent a message to you. And then you said... Like, hey, let's meet at conference. Let's meet at conference. And I walked up to you in the exhibit hall in 2015 when it was in Kansas City. 
And five minutes after talking, you said, hey, do you want to start a music cognition podcast together? And that is the origin story of this podcast now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I went through some iterations before I got to this, but I'm really thrilled that Bria took it it away and made it happen. So um, also, what, I composed like the intro music yeah, and the, outro music, and and the, the bumpers, bumpers that yeah. you'll hear soon. Yeah, so I have a hand, an invisible <laughs> hand in this process, even though it's absolutely Bria's. Yeah. So did you, you did not come to music therapy originally. You were more interested in the music theory side yes. as well. Because yes. there's so many different dimensions of music cognition, right? You got the music theorists coming in. You have the cognitive neuroscientists who are like mm-hmm. musicians and have that interest. You have the music therapists. You have the clinical applications. How did you first come to music cognition? So, um, yeah, so I was started as a music composition and theory student when I was at the University of Kansas and it didn't work out for me as a composer there. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I got, I got, um, I applied for the professional sequence, and they're like, "No, try again." I did it again. They're like, "No, try again." So I was like, "It's time to move on." Um, and I happened to be at a program or at a school with a fabulous music therapy program, and I switched into that. But I still loved music theory dearly, and I got to take a graduate level music theory course on film, music, or 20th century music theory and film, and. Through that, I got to you know hang out with this guy um, Scott Murphy, Dr. Murphy at KU, and he's an amazing professor. And I asked him to do an independent study on music cognition because we got into some of music cognition and perception stuff for the film music theory class. So him and I did an independent study semester on David Huron's book uh, *Sweet Anticipation*. Great book. And that um, you know was my deep dive. And then I you know went to a music cognition conference or two or three and. And then I started presenting on it at conferences, um, and I kind of did the thing where I'm like, this is something I want to know about, and I love presenting, and presenting is a great way for me to learn, so I would apply for a presentation, get the thumbs up, you know, for, like, regional conferences, and then I would, like, come up with a bunch of content, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, look at what was hip, um, then, you know, the newest research before the conference and put it all together. And so some of the stuff I'm most able to kind of pull out of my back pocket when I'm, you know, talking shop are things that I just force myself to present on. Yeah. And then I've kind of also had a piece of my mission when going to music cognition conferences to talk to them about music therapists and what we can provide, because by and large, we're deeply separate um, as fields. Music kind of the way I think of it is like music theorists and music music composers who aren't separate at all. But music theorists are figuring out the theory, figuring out the nitty gritty of stuff that's happened before, as well as what's happening now and what could happen in the future. Whereas composers are taking all that information and doing something practical with it. And I feel like that's the difference between music cognition researchers and music therapists. You know, music cognition researchers are vastly doing theory, doing stuff where they're um, coming up with ideas and, and answering questions about music and perception. And music therapists are out there using music to help people, using music to like help people reach their goals and do all these different things. And so if we're talking to each other, we could achieve so, so much. Because music cognition folk are doing interventionary work. Um, or, yeah, doing studies about how different types of people perceive music differently, which to me so clearly has these clinical applications for Absolutely. music therapists. And I feel like as a field, we don't, we have this like lived knowledge of these differences in music perception or like how music behavior unfolds in humans, but we don't quite have the, I don't know, the experimental evidence like in our back pockets mm-hmm. all the time, or we just don't come from that theoretical basis of basic science and applying it every single time and by and large music therapists are generalists we know a little bit about a ton of things you know like we come out of a program being able to work with anyone from toddlers to geriatric care you know or from um you know from 
adolescents with autism all the way to hospice, you know, and um, whereas people in music cognition work are kind of more, follow the more traditional academic route of having a specific thing that they know mm-hmm. a ton about. And so if we were to meet up with someone who's already doing something very specific, and we'd come in with our knowledge of, our grand knowledge of intervention, like how to engage with people and how to build that, I really feel like the most, the synergy there would be empowering for both fields. At the very least, we could recruit for the studies themselves. Like, we work with the folks that... Correct. Yeah. So Especially, yeah, special populations and all that. Special populations, yeah. And so right now we have a little break. Um, so we're actually recording at the Sake One Brewery. So Tessa is pouring... Can you tell us what you're pouring? Yeah. Hello, hello. <laughs> the second one on the craft is going to be a Daiginjo grade sake. So even though you did the craft flight, you do get to try a Daiginjo quality sake. So that means the rice is polished past 50%. So it's going to be really smooth. The flavor is going to be a little more complex. It's one of my personal favorites that we make here. And then the second one uh, for the infused flight is going to be the Asian pear, also my favorite of the Moonstone line. It tastes just like an Asian pear if you've had one, kind of like a hybrid between an apple and a pear. You'll get to taste an apple there. And it's a lot sweeter than the cucumber mint that you just had. I hope you all just appreciated the ASMR of, like, that pouring. Yeah. (laughs) I know, it is good, huh? (laughs) Enjoy, guys. Thank you so much. Daniel, can you give me an example of when you've applied something you know about music cognition or something you learned at a conference to your work or maybe approached a client differently? Like that, because for at least me, like one of my goals of this podcast is to have this bridge that's kind of translating back and forth. You know, research isn't the most readable or digestible a lot, but also. You know, I always want to give my listeners some takeaways or practical, like how can you think about your behavior this way or how you listen to music? So clinically, do you yeah, have any? Yeah, I got one. Um, so Laurel Trainer is at McMaster. She's a fabulous music cognition researcher. And I can't remember if it was her or, like, I don't know if she was the PI on the study or if she was, um, if it was just her lab. But um, they did two sets of studies, or two studies um, about toddlers and, um, and bonding over uh, being what is it being entrained with yeah. um with someone else where basically they have the toddler in kind of a chest harness thing and they're looking at someone and they're either being bounced in beat with this other person they're looking at or they're going at different um tempo tempi and then they would have the toddler do a helping task with the person they were watching and basically when they bounced in rhythm together they would help like 15 out of 20 tries with the helping task but if they were bouncing and, and not in um the rhythm with each other it would be like five out of 20 or four oh. out of 20 it was significant <laughs> like not even just like oh like statistically significant it was like practically significant but what was really interesting was they had the control they had was someone just sitting in the background um like reading a book and they would do the helping task with that person instead of the person they were watching and the effects of being in rhythm or not also translated to that person that had nothing to do with the rhythm so they were like that's cool um so it's basically if you're looking at the graph it's like a bar graph where if they're bouncing in rhythm it's like you know the highest one if they're the control person but they were watching an in rhythm person it's one down and then the control person for um bouncing out of rhythm is the next one down and then the lowest one is the person bouncing out of rhythm that they were oh. watching so it's like this perfect thing so it's so they're like let's do a follow-up and I did a study where, because they're, what we're seeing there is third-party association mm-hmm. from toddlers for music, like, social stuff. Sure. And so they did another study where they had people show, like, they did, like, a skit. Like, it would be, like, you and me doing a skit showing that we have, like, we're, we're um, comrades of some sort. Yeah. And then the toddler does a task with you, the bouncing thing, and then they do the helping task with me. 
So it's just we show that we are it's like secondary ripple effect of trust. Mm-hmm. And they found and they found the same thing from the first study that you and I showing social bonding or showing a social bond, and then them doing the bonding thing with you, they could then translate that to me, even though they hadn't seen me since the beginning. Mm-hmm. And so all of that is to set this up the idea that. Um, all people. Well, and the interesting thing with toddlers instead of adults doing this task is it shows a level of inherence that it is inherent to humanity or it is inherent sure. to people that this is something we do. So knowing that, when I've had to, so that's a ton of background to for a simple <laughs> thing. Music therapists from time to time um, have to change, you know, have to give their clients to another music therapist. Mm-hmm. So when I had my private practice and I had to hand off clients to. Uh, one of my employees, like when I forgot my first employee, um, I made sure to do exactly that. Show social bond in front of the client with this new therapist and then make music with the client. And then of course have the other music therapists engage with music as well. But I tried to use all those tricks to help the person, the client make as much social bond to this new therapist and use that kind of third party association in the musical environment as I could to make the transition as healthy as possible. That's amazing. Oh my gosh, to make that, because that therapeutic transition well I mean the therapeutic relationship is so important between the client and the therapist in the first place and that can be a really jarring thing Mm -hmm. and was the client a child um the space I'm thinking of it was adolescence okay but still like I don't know a population where you want it you can't just explain it Mm -hmm. maybe that transition would be hard and That's I have another really cool. story about that concept, but it's not clinical per se. Okay. Basically, sure. I had an opportunity. I did a keynote at an occupational therapy conference in Virginia, and um, the president of the organization went on before me and spoke for like ten or fifteen minutes about herself, about oh, I you know I grew up here and I you know and me and my husband moved to Japan and you know all these different things, and it was a really long time, and I already didn't have enough time to do my entire talk and and she was talking about this and I was getting kind of frustrated because I I didn't understand what it was about and everyone was just kind of you know I don't know it wasn't engaging but finally she said like after 10 or 15 minutes of doing this okay why am I telling you this well research shows that if you share more things about yourself that people trust you more and like you more and things like that so um, I wanted to do that since I'm your new president and I want you to you know trust me and know that I'm here for you kind of thing and I went up to do my talk, and I did a little music intervention, a little music thing with the audience that I start all my talks with. And, um, and I wanted to go on the mic and say, now you all trust and like me more in 30 seconds of music making <laughs> than that lady got in 10 minutes. Because, t- you know, research, according to the research, whatever, like, that is true. Like, they all already yeah. like, they were laughing with me, they were tapping their feet with me. And there's a ton of bonding that you see in study after study after study that I got in 30 seconds, that she spent 10 minutes and people, I think, seemed more confused. See, that seems like a misapplication of the research because it almost if she had to explain herself why she was doing it. I'm sure all of that research was true, but you could get the same thing done by like just and like mm-hmm. doing that musical back and forth. It's, like it's the, so embodied, it's so just acted out and so automatic. It's like the research equivalent of explaining a joke. Something I'd really like to see is... Basically, music therapy conferences are music therapists talking to music therapists about music therapy. Or music therapists talking to music therapists about something outside of music therapy that they as a music therapist have done, but maybe aren't an expert on. Mm-hmm. You know, and I see this a lot, and I love my music therapy business owner colleagues, but there's a lot of kind of that inbreeding of information where it's not necessarily the best advice, but it's because it's our people talking to our people. It's the thing that gets echoed. Um, and so the same thing with music cognition, you know, they're kind of, they're multi-field and they're all they're sorts very, of things. Yeah, they're very interdisciplinary. Yeah. So 
everyone should go to a music cognition conference. So we need more music them. therapists going to music cognition conferences, and we need more of them being invited to speak at ours, which I actually put out a thing in the Society for Music Perception and Cognition for people to apply. Mm-hmm. And a couple people emailed me that they did, but it appears no one got accepted, which is no one's fault. But um, if we could have a joint conference at some point with a music cognition Absolutely. organization and a music therapy organization, I would cry happy tears. Daniel, how many music cognition conferences have you been to so far? Have we always been at them? No, not no, together. No, I went to one in Baltimore without, before we met. And then I went to one in Nashville before we met. Mm-hmm. And then we both went to the one in San Diego. Yes. And then you went... Oh, I went to the one in San Francisco. That was just me. And then we went to David, one of David Huron's empirical musicology workshops. Mm-hmm. Highly recommend if anyone... David if he's Huron's still one. doing it. I mean, he's retired now. Either way, know. read anything he writes. He's... Like, he's just a wonderful He's a music human. theorist who can write in a way that you appreciate and like even laugh along. He has a really great like two-page thing on evolution in music, like the issues of evolution in musicology or something. It, and he like describes like aliens coming to Earth and like <laughs> it's it's just a really beautiful short paper about why music is so interesting. Yeah, and then I went to New York. So you've been to two? I guess I feel like I've been to three, but I can only think of two right now. Huh. How would you describe music cognition conferences and their in contrast to a music therapy conference? Well, for those that have been to one or the other. Well, the thing is, in basically a majority of non-music therapy conferences I've been to, so I've been to the American Psychological Association, um, the APA conference, I've been to a gerontology conference, I've been to the OT conference, but vastly they're, they don't do like the single slot that only one person's presenting for the whole hour and 15 minutes or the hour or the two hours that happens at music therapy where it's these all long format talks for the most mm-hmm. part where it's one person or group of people and they have 75 minutes yeah to talk. and it. and there's a concurrent session slot and they have you know anywhere from depending on the conference five to 20 you know different things happening at the music cognition conferences i've been to as well, well actually you know what they have topics within the hour but then they split up the hour into three or four sections correct and it's like totally cool to like get up and leave mm-hmm. and, and get up and come in like that it's not uncouth to like be like all right got my i wanted to go to that one now i want to go to the second one at this other place like that was something i really appreciated that there wasn't like kind of that like internal shame of like wanting to check out just this and just this and it makes things people keep it snappy you know mm-hmm. um at the apa conference they a lot of them were these little quick talks like and i gave one on music therapy with older adults at that one and but then there were also workshop ones where it was a whole two hours where it was just these three people or these four people talking and so it was like i don't know it was special you know whereas at music therapy conferences it's just standard which is fine but um it it, i don't know it was i liked that um you know what i really appreciate about music cognition conferences that i don't see much at music therapy conferences and this sounds so I don't know, basic to me, but they always have, they schedule in coffee breaks with pastries and it's just this food is like such a gathering place Mm -hmm. and it's, you get to run into other people and I don't know if, I mean, did they have like snack breaks at APA? Cause that's so big. I don't know if it's a scale thing because music therapy conferences can be so much bigger. I mean, APA had like straight up like dinner. Like, I mean, they had like, I'm trying to remember. Like receptions. They for had like receptions. Oh, the division like, stuff. That was a whole thing that we don't have music therapy. We're but not also big not for music that cognition yet. either. I mean, we could have something. 
just to describe what that is, in the APA, there's some, there's a division system where they have like 40 or 50 different divisions of research. So there'll be like a gerontology one, there'll be a gender studies one, there'll be, um, you know, refugees and therapy one, like into so all these different cool. ones. And then each one of those is a separate like nonprofit where, I mean, at least some of them I went to where they'll have receptions, award ceremonies, et cetera, within the conference. So I just went to all these different ones where like they had like, you know, snacks and wine and then they'd have an award ceremony. There was, was there any, was there a division that might, that might meet both music cognition or music? Was there like a creative arts yeah, kind of cre- division? That's what I, there's, yeah, there's a creative arts therapy okay. or, or it was like arts in therapy or something like that. It wasn't creative arts therapy. And, and that was one of the divisions that I presented under. It was that one in the gerontology one. Um, and, and, the divi- and what was wild was one of the divisions I went to, like, literally had five full-time staff. Like, and I was, in the office. You know, and yeah. as their division. So, like, that division alone is, you know, probably comparable to, you know, the American Music Therapy Association. Right. You know? And they even had a lobbyist that was just walking around saying, like, hey, what, should, what do you want me to talk to? A music therapy <laughs> lobbyist. What a... I mean, what I, a dream. Well, I think we have something. <laughs> no, we don't. No? Okay. We have Judy Simpson. She's the, like, government relations yeah. person. I guess that's an interesting transition because we just started 2020. You know, we're recording this in January 2nd, 2020. Where do you hope music therapy and music cognition could meet in five years and ten years? Well, the joint conference would be cool. Um, also, like, now that uh, more and more people are talking about music and harm... I feel like that's a place we can meet in the middle because um, you really, you know, using the translational research is a great way to talk about music possibilities for music therapy to be harmful without actually having to test it. <laughs> you know, because you can say, oh, like, I mean, there's the one you talk about with this type of brain surgery that changes, that causes amusia in like 40% of people. Oh, sure. Yeah. Like, so amusia is when someone has a brain injury or there can be congenital amusia, but there are many different types flavors of amusia where like one or more elements of music aren't processed typically by the brain and so in middle cerebral artery strokes which is a very common type of stroke there's a statistic that i saw in like music cognition papers um by isabel perez yeah perez i don't know we're sorry, Isabel. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but I think the estimates are that 15 to 40% of these middle cerebral artery stroke patients experience some form of amusia. Some mm. recover, some don't. But all of a sudden, it's like when I'm working in neuro rehab, I should be assessing for maybe basic can they match a pitch? Can they entrain mm-hmm. to a rhythm? Because if they're not, if I'm not correcting or taking into account that they're not processing music how they did before their injury how can i be effective yeah in and my you know, interventionary tool and jessica grand did her, like her keynote at that smpc in san diego on ras the music therapy technique and about how like it made a difference to see the like the perceptions that were already inherent in the person like mm-hmm. testing them for a beat and rhythm i can't remember the specific right. test but like it, it those predicted their results in ras and I haven't oh. heard about music therapists like actually testing people to see if they're appropriate for RAS. They just kind of do it. You've done the NMT training, so I don't know. Yeah, so with RAS, one of the air quote selling points is that the entrainment happens in the spinal cord level. So it almost, at least how I was taught, was like, oh, it's just this automatic entrainment thing. Mm-hmm. And so almost everyone's, but maybe that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. Maybe we can filter out the people who are best going to 
benefit from mm -hmm. RAS or any other music therapy. Well, technique. especially if we're getting into like trying to get insurance coverage and things like that. Like that's the kind of stuff where you have to prove something. Like just a grant already wrote. I mean. I remember I told uh, Blythe Lugosi about it after I went to the conference, and she was trying to keep an eye out for that study, but didn't find it. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if it had been published yet at that time. But if and when it's published, I mean, that's essential reading, sure. honestly, for anyone doing NMT stuff. I also just see, hopefully in the future, we can get some collaborations going where a music therapist is part of designing the research methodology ahead of time. So whatever music mm -hmm. activity probably a clinical population is doing because um, I feel like a lot of music cognition researchers working with autism spectrum disorders or older adults they have this they're very clear like oh of course this has clinical applications but there's something about working with those populations and knowing the quirks more or mm -hmm. less of like the day-to-day like, you know, we both work with older adults a lot. We kind of just know they have good days and they have bad days. And what does sundowning actually look like? Yeah. And there's and just approaching them and speaking with them a certain way. Yeah. Um, well, even I'm thinking when yeah. I had practicum students during my master's, like, and I did a lot of work with older adults and when I was in Virginia, like, there were these things where they'd say, oh, I want to, you know, do this and this. I'm like, okay. And I, like, knew, like, four tips to tell them mm -hmm. to make it work as best as possible. Absolutely. And kind of the way I looked at being a supervisor was being a coach. You know, being like, all yeah. right. So the intervention you've designed sounds great. Here's what you can do to make it awesome, you know, to make it really successful the first time. And even in working with practicum students, I had to define the tricks I already had in my back pocket and give them names, you know. <laughs> and so those types of skills. So I, I couldn't see a person creating a study who hasn't actually worked with the population in a clinical way being beyond my practicum students, if that mm -hmm, makes sense. Sure. You know, so having a music therapist to like say, okay, I like this, you know, protocol, but here's something that'll like make it like work really well the first time. You know, right. have you thought about how the headphones are going to be positioned and how they? Yeah. yeah, that's always a good. Just, just double check. Maybe, maybe they have. Mm -hmm. These are very smart people we'd yeah, be collaborating are. with. Everyone's so smart. Yeah. Um, there was something else I was going to say to your last question, and I forgot it. Um, where where should we be in the next five or ten years with music therapy and music cognition? You said the shared conference. The shared conference would be so cool. And I said, pain. oh, the other thing is, um, and I just tweeted about it today, Lindsay Warrenberg, um, who uh, did work in her PhD, I believe. I, I don't know. I her. think she just got PhD finished. Yeah. So Dr. Dr. Lindsay, Dr. Warrenberg, um, either way, on acetaminophen and music perception. So, what is acetaminophen? So like Tylenol, <laughs> like, or like... You know, so basically a very common painkiller. And the thing I looked at, it said 20% of Americans use it at least once a week. You know, so a very, very common one, especially if you're working in hospitals, working in places where someone is experiencing pain, yeah. it changes the way that they recognize emotional content in music. So, and I said this to Bria, you know, you could literally make a career off of that research alone. Just the neurochemical drug, interactions with music. Yeah, dr you know, cheap. like common drugs, especially if it's population specific. But even if it's just standard, like... Uh, like opioids. How do opioids mm -hmm. change music perception and responses? Yeah, even Benadryl. Like, I mean, just these basic things, does it change music perception? And, I mean, that'd be wild because, you know we could be trying to use music therapy with a certain group and saying, oh, it doesn't really work that well, or mm -hmm. it's never... But then you learn the specific things that are happening with um, this drug interaction. You know what's funny to me about that is that I know that there's already some studies, some clinical applications being done of not music therapy per se, but like music and psychedelics for very intense mm -hmm. depression treatment. So it's funny that like that's probably the biggest area of like neurochemical stuff in music and mm -hmm. clinical applications, but it's almost these like 
taboo drugs, or at least taboo in the United oh. States, that's opening up a little bit. But the more common drugs, like Tylenol or, mm-hmm. you know, the big painkillers like morphine or something, yeah. that would be really interesting. And on the psychedelic research, when I was at the APA conference, they did a whole presentation on psychedelic therapy, on um, specifically with psilocybin. And the woman who's been doing it for decades and is, you know, she's even in the documentaries and stuff. I ran into her in the conference hall, and I said, like, this seems a lot. Have you heard of GIM? You know, guided imagery with music. Um, with she, Helen Bonney. Yeah, and yeah. she was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, and, and she was like, oh, yeah, we had a guy in the office who did that stuff. And, like, and we talked to him, and he helped. You know, so, like, okay. that stuff did inform their work. Yeah. You know, even though it's not what they're doing. So. It just, maybe the connections are still there historically. They've just faded a little bit. Yeah. Or they've just. And for those of you who don't know, GIM started with psychedelic therapy. <laughs> yeah. Like, back in the day, back in the day. In the 70s. When was back in the day? 60s? Something. When did it become a class one child? I don't know. Well, and that was the interesting thing in that presentation, which might not be here nor there, but it talked about the progression of it becoming, um, like, societally condemned mm-hmm. psychedelics. Like, there was a, they showed a letter from a priest to his congregation saying, you know, may God guide the researchers in this amazing new chemical that they've discovered mm-hmm. about LSD. You know, and saying, like, you know, the, and the research on, you know, on psychedelics in all these different um, diagnoses, the ones I've seen specifically are smoking cessation, um, PTSD, depression, suicidality. Like, it, in a single session, the the results are better than any other therapy we know of. Wow. You know, it's just unbelievable. And the fact that, like, it's so difficult to get that research going, it's just wild when it's clearly so <laughs> successful. So, Daniel, one last question looking forward. Who are you most excited to I don't know see where they're going in the in the future in the next decade of research in the next decade of collaboration. So if you can name two to three people maybe on the music cognition side, two to three people on the music therapy side, because um, we have a lot of listeners that are music therapists. We have a lot of listeners that I don't know a lot. Definitely a lot of music therapists. We do have I'm sure there are some listeners that are music cognition enthusiasts. Mm-hmm. And interested about you know applying this. So who are the up and comers? Because we can name you know the rock stars of both fields that are you know going to keep getting better, keep doing the good research. But I'm curious who who are you watching for the 2020 decade? Oh man. Well, one thing with I mean I don't know a ton of people. I'm in a specific place where I know specific people, so I don't know everything that's going on. But something that's really big right now in music therapy um, as an organization um, is talking about race and gender and um, and going beyond the idea of diversity and getting into include you know and even beyond inclus- inclusion, but also going into um, real cultural humility. And so there's folks talking about um, difference of ability, difference of race, and difference of all these things and how it relates to music therapy. So I'm really interested in seeing um, you know Natasha Thomas, um, Hakeem Leonard, um, and then um, Marisol Norris, yeah, and seeing kind of the stuff they're putting out. Um, because, I mean, they've already been published. I know they're still working on other stuff. And there's a book in the works. And there's all sorts of stuff going on. And it's going to be really cool to see how that um, happens in the profession. Yeah, um, like these I, macro, almost sociological systems that mm-hmm. are impacting how we treat as music therapists. Yeah, and even more specifically, way. how they build their programs. I'm closest, um, of that group, I'm closest with Hakeem Leonard. And um, and we've talked about the things, you know, him and his um, co-faculty are doing to change the program at Shenandoah mm-hmm. and um, really make it not just kind of you know covering the basis of what you need to teach but really digging into making people prepared to be an ethical and aware music therapist mm-hmm. and 
and, like, and they're talking about things that I wish I had gotten, you know, yeah. and that's, you know, kind of something both of us share is, you know, we want to teach what we wish we had been taught, you know, both of us. Yeah, we're both. Yeah. And so, nice. so those are the folks in music therapy that I'm really excited to see what they're up to um, and see, cause I mean, they're doing the good work. So it'll be interesting how it, it works organizationally, but also in their specific programs, because having programs that are safe for people who aren't just, you know, middle-class white women, um, which is, you know, a vast majority of our profession. Um, so not just places that have people, but are actually safe and, um, and able to support people who aren't within that very specific normalized status yeah. um, is going to make or break the future of our profession. So I'm excited that they're doing that. I mean, that's just so much better for client care that they have more options in their clinicians, someone that looks like them, someone mm-hmm. that, yeah, just, or even just has that more competence or responsiveness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it goes through totally the entire that. continuum from recruiting of music therapists to training of music therapists to clinical work as music therapists to teaching as a music therapist, mm-hmm. every layer. And then, of course, clients, which is you know who we're all kind of quote-unquote doing it for. But every layer of the profession and the process of becoming a music therapist will be affected. And be and the thing is, it helps everyone. Is the, yeah. is the kicker is a lot of people look at these types of issues saying, well, we want to help those people. And it's not those. It's all of us that benefit when we make it equitable for everyone. Um, we will be better music therapists. Our clients will get better music therapy services. I mean, it really is what we need to do and what we're behind on. That's not music cognition, but That's it's right. something that I see as important. You um, answered the questions. So um, and in music cognition, I mean, I just follow a bunch of folks on Twitter. Like, I've gotten into music cognition Twitter, and there's really cool <laughs> stuff going out there, but I couldn't, you know, name a list of names. The Lindsay Warrenberg study about acetaminophen, that's something that I think is, you know, game changer for yeah. music therapists. Yeah. Um, you know what's interesting? Yeah. yeah, we're getting more people that have training in both. So Jessica Riley, who was in, I interviewed in the episode right before this one, she started as Nina Krause's research assistant and then went into music therapy. And I mm-hmm. think she's looking to going back into research, but she actually like has a foot in both camps. We yeah. just show up to the conferences. But yeah, no getting. I really people. appreciate that. Um, yeah, getting more people who have a foot in both. Because, you know, we have people who are, you know, music therapists and SLPs or and OTs. Or, you know, we have those folks. So having more people who are not just, like, enthusiasts like us, mm-hmm. but um, people who are actually doing that research and in that lab. Which is actually a reason I got a master's in music therapy was for the intention of doing a PhD in music cognition and knowing what I was talking about. Right. Um, cool. Anything else the listeners should know that about, I don't know. Anything else the listeners should know, Daniel? Just, I think, for the music therapists, for the listeners who are music therapists, just the big thing is that the, the, what can make our profession great is by learning from outside our profession. There's a lot yes. of music therapists talking to music therapists about something. And it'd be really great to have more people learning from non-music therapists about topics that are t- learning from experts about those topics instead of learning from music therapists who kind of have a general idea, you know? Which I say as a person who's completely guilty of being a music therapist, talking to music therapists about topics that I don't know as much as I should about. Um, Just opening the, lo- the channels of communication. Yeah. Having the people who have an undergrad in this and then going to music therapy. Or having a music therapist who gets a master's in this other thing but keeps a foot in the music therapy door. Like, that's going to be stuff that makes our profession awesome. You know, having more lawyer music therapists. Having more... Because, I mean, I just met a woman, um, Jerry... I can't remember her last name. Jerry. Okay. I just met a woman, Jerry, who's the CEO of the, um, the, the music settlement in Cleveland. And she was a music therapist back in the day, went to law school, became this, you know, badass corporate lawyer for decades, you know, wrote books, like, or wrote a book, like wrote, you know, has been in research and music therapy research as well, and came back to be the CEO of this organization. And she's clearly like this game changer for that organization Absolutely. because she has all the skills 
to do it. And I just would love to see more people like that, where yeah. they're music therapists and something else, and they use all that to help music therapists. Right. I mean, this is a whole nother episode, but I'm still trying to figure out what kind of doctorate I want to go to, and I'm pretty sure it's a PhD in clinical psychology. Mm-hmm. But it just, it's so, I don't know, something about getting three degrees in music therapy seems like, you know, there's, I can bring more to the field if I go outside of it. Mm-hmm. So... Well, Daniel, thanks for the visit. Thanks for mm. the interview. Thank you, Maria.